Ever wonder why nearly all beef, pork, and poultry in U.S. supermarkets is produced by only a handful of companies? Their names are familiar. Tyson, Cargill, JBS, Swift, Pilgrim's Pride, Smithfield, and they all enjoy throwing their weight around in one of the world's most concentrated markets. Despite enormous profits, these companies have been raising a stink. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has drafted new rules that could change the marketplace. The rules deal with fairness and transparency in contracts with poultry and pork farmers and open competition in markets for cattle ranchers. The USDA has posted the draft rules for comment and the backlash from big meat has been fierce. In this special issue of Radio Sustain, we look at the effects of corporate concentration in meat and poultry markets on U.S. farmers and ranchers and how the proposed USDA rules might change the game. Mike Weaver raises 660,000 chickens a year at his West Virginia operation. He's part of the Poultry Growers Association of the Virginias. We talked with him to learn more about the challenges facing poultry growers in the U.S. With these new rules that uh, the USDA is proposing, uh, what type of unfair practices uh, do you think they could help correct? system they call it. Um, actually the companies try to call it a tournament system because they want to put a, a, a nice term to a, a sorry system as far as I'm concerned for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the way that ranking system works is they they take all the growers who sell their flocks for the week and they force us to compete against each other. And the worst thing about the ranking system as far as I'm concerned is that we're, we're forced to compete against each other uh, based on their inputs, uh, it's their feed and their ticks that they bring to us, and we raise their chickens, and they come and get them and process them. Well, the feed and the chick, 80% are producing chicken. So if I'm lucky and <clears throat> I get all, all good chicks and all good feed, I might have pretty good chickens. But if I don't, either one of those is lacking in quality, then I'm not going to produce a, a good chick. I, but I still have to compete against all the other growers who sell the week I do. So these rules will um, take away that ranking system? or What they do is create a base pay for growers that the companies can't take away. Right now, if you rank lower average, you're, uh, they take money away from you, and they give it to the growers who are above average for that week. So they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And the new rules say that they can't uh, take away whatever your base pay is. And ho hopefully we'll be able to, or at least the companies will be, cooperative and set that base pay at an amount that at least allows us to pay our expenses. Is that a, a big issue with poultry growers, the issue of expenses um, and and how that varies from year to year? Yes, that's, that has a tremendous impact on us and how much money we make because of <clears throat> right now, or recently, fuel prices have been a, uh, had a terrible impact on us and most uh, companies haven't compensated the growers for the increase in fuel. And electricity, our, our electricity rate here in the last two years have gone up 27%, but we haven't seen any increases from the company. Uh, and our, our pay is probably the one of the biggest issues that these new rules will help us with. Uh, a good example I can give you is that I can show you a grower settlement where he got paid for chickens back in 1985, where uh, or they make as much as 
4.85 cents a pound for their chicken, and today our base pay for a conventional house is 5.05 cents. So it's only two-tenths cents more than it was 25 years ago. Who are some of the companies that are opposing these rules, and, and what are some of the arguments that they're making? Well, to my knowledge, all the companies are opposing them because one of the excuses they're using is that uh, these new rules is going to make take money away from better growers and give it to the growers who pay, give the growers who don't do their job or don't work hard to raise chickens, and that's absolutely false. Uh, the rules say they have to create a base pay, but it, it doesn't say that they can't continue to pay incentives for better production or improved housing or whatever the growers might do. At, at the USDA Department of Justice hearings, there was a lot of discussion about um, producers reluctant to testify at some of those hearings because of fear of retaliation. Is, are, do you see that as a, as a real threat? Yes. There's no question about that. That ranges from refusing to sign a document that they give you to refusing to make hundreds of thousands of dollars in improvements in your poultry operation. I had, I had an instance one time where um, they had a biosecurity uh, form they wanted to sign. Uh, it was just a general thing that they used to bring around every year and, and make people sign. And one of the things it said on it was, I've had an opportunity to have my to have questions answered that I have. And uh, I told them that I had questions about it, but never had an opportunity to have, it, have them answered, or they never came around to answer them. So I, I signed their form, but I put on there that I have not had an opportunity to have my questions answered. Well, they called me into the company, and as soon as I walked in, they handed me a blank form and said, if you don't sign this before you leave here, you won't get chickens again, all over a piece of paper. And then, then you have the other side of the coin is the, the growers who they go to them and tell them that they got to make ten, twenty, dollars $100,000 in improvements to their houses, and if they don't, they're not going to get chickens again. Retaliation is alive and well in the poultry industry in the United States. If these rules are put in in place, uh, what additional steps are you thinking are necessary to restore fairness in the marketplace? Well, one of the things the rules don't do is establish what what the base pay is or what what the base should growers. And we are submitting a, a request that uh, the rules include a statement that say base pay has an amount that is equal to. Uh, what it costs a grower to, to pay his expenses and realize a reasonable re, uh, rate of return on his investment. People, I've been misled And I've been afraid I've been hit in the head And left for dead I've been abused And I've been accused Gilles Stockton is a livestock rancher in Montana. We talked with him to find out more about how market power in the beef industry affects ranchers. Well, there's two issues, of course. There's price. When you have a a retail monopoly and then then a packer monopoly, there's a lot of uh, pressure on the the prices that we get as those of us who raise the baby calves, the cow-calf producer ranchers. But there's two issues involved here, price and independence. What happened in the poultry and pork industries before it's happened fully in the beef industry is a vertical integration such that uh, now poultry and pork producers only work under contract to the uh, major firms in their, their industry. And right now you've 
independent producers are being or ranchers are being sort of closed out of getting a fair price and and being maintaining their independence yes you got to understand that the uh, the beef industry is broken up into two segments there's those of us who raise the baby calves and sell them as weaning and we wean calves to the feedlot. Well, the first people who are getting vertically integrated are the feedlots, and there's been considerable consolidation of feedlots, and independent feedlots are getting very, very rare. The next step that will happen, but hasn't happened in a significant way yet, is that us ranchers will then become captive to particular feedlots or to pick particular streams of marketing. Who are the big companies in the lives? You're talking about them, but who? what are the, some of the names that we're talking about? Well, you've got Tyson, uh, and of course people should be familiar with Tyson and chicken and pork and, and now beef once, once they bought a company called uh, IDP. So Tyson is dominant in all meats. You've got Cargill, that's your company right out of Minnesota. Their Excel branch is uh, for beef, but they also have huge holdings in uh, poultry and pork. And then you've got Swift and Company, which has recently, it was last, uh, a little over a year ago, was purchased by a Brazilian company, JBS. And JBS is the largest uh, meat purveyor in the world. Bill Bullard is the CEO at the Ranchers Cattlemen Action Legal Fund. He talked to us about how the proposed USDA rules would change the marketplace for ranchers. Well, the key challenge is having a acceptable marketplace when fed cattle are ready for market. We have an industry that has become increasingly concentrated where now the market outlets are literally controlled by four major meat packers. And those meat packers decide who does and who does not have timely access to the market. So this has created a new risk for producers called market access risk. And that's the risk of not having timely access to the marketplace when their perishable livestock are ready to market. And that's the key. Fed cattle need to be marketed within a narrow window of time Otherwise, they will degrade in quality and the producer will lose money. And the packers know this, and this is a tremendous leverage that monopolistic-type packers have over independent cattle producers. So that's the challenge we need to address, is we need to ensure that the marketplace for fed cattle is open, fair, transparent, and unencumbered by the abuse of market power of the Packers. And how would these GYPSA rules address some of these, these problems that you've talked about? Well, the GYPSA rule addresses the four major affronts to competition. First, it requires accountability on the part of the Packer. The GYPSA rule clarifies that if the Packers engage in an unlawful practice, that practice is prohibited whether or not the packer exacted a harm on the entire industry or on an individual or a small group of individuals. 
And so by clarifying that unlawful practices are unlawful even if only a single individual producer is targeted is critically important and a key provision in the rule. The second provision of the rule requires the documentation that is necessary to determine if a cattle or livestock procurement transaction is based on market forces or if it is based on the exercise of abuse of market power. The rule requires the packers to keep records and to justify different prices paid for similar kinds of animals. USDA needs this to determine the basis for the price to ensure that the meat packers are not giving sweetheart deals or making secret deals to some producers and then discriminating against others. The third major provision in the GYPSA rule is that it requires transparency on the part of the packers. And it does this by requiring the packers to provide to USDA sample copies of all the various contracts that the packers may use in cap procurement. USDA estimates that the top 10 packers each have 10 different types of contracts available for producers. So the rule, by requiring the packers to provide USDA with a copy, sample copies of these contracts, will enable a producer to determine which of the various contracts are most suitable for his or her operation, as well as to determine which of the packers may be seeking the type and quality of cattle that the producer has to offer. The fourth major provision in the rule that, that addresses the, the four affronts to competition is that the rule addresses the inattention uh, for the anti-competitive practices that are already known to be going on within the marketplace. Uh, one of these is the practice of the packers apportioning supply, which is a clear violation of the pack stockyard pack, and the packers do this by buying livestock from each other rather than going out and purchasing livestock from feeders. So the rule prohibits packer-to-packer -packer sales, uh, thereby addressing this known anti-competitive practice that is reducing competition in the marketplace. The other anti-competitive practice addresses is the rule prohibits a multiple packers from joining together to hire a single cattle buyer or livestock buyer to procure livestock. In other words, this rule prevents the packers from working together, sharing a single buyer for the purpose of eliminating competition for livestock wherever that single buyer may be uh, purchasing or acquiring livestock. So the rule addresses the uh, four fronts to competition, lack of accountability, lack of transparency, lack of documentation, and inattention toward the ongoing anti-competitive practices uh, that are occurring in our marketplace. Alan Giebert is a syndicated columnist on agricultural issues. He's been reporting on the political fight 
over the new USDA rules. This, this comes out of the 2008 Farm Bill that everyone agreed needed to strengthen the uh, Grain Inspection uh, Pack Stockyards Act because of what had occurred early you know, in, the, in, in 2002, 2000, 2005, and 2006 when it was revealed through an Office of Inspector General report at USDA that JIPCA hadn't instituted one, <laughs> not one, uh, case against any packer in the previous six years. It wasn't a toothless tiger. It was a sleeping toothless tiger. It didn't even it didn't even file any paperwork against PAC. So people were deeply offended by the fact that this agency that was whose sole charge to protect poultry and livestock producers against abuse in the marketplace hadn't found one instance of abuse <laughs> over I don't know a half a billion head of cattle and hogs sold in five years. So the the legislatures, both in the Senate and the House, agreed that the. The rules needed to be updated, reviewed, and added to. And that's exactly what has occurred. Right. How powerful are these packers on Capitol Hill? Well, they're very powerful. Uh, you know, ask the senator from Iowa, Chuck Grassley, the Republican, you know, long ago he labeled the packers, you know, uh, one of the more dramatic forces in agriculture. There's so few of them. Just the four big ones, mind you, split still almost 80%, well, a little over 80% of all the fat cattle in the country and over 50% of all the hogs in the country. And they do the bulk of each under contract. 91 out of 100 hogs grown in America today are, are grown under contract to somebody, usually a packer. And nearly 40 to uh, 45 uh, head out of every 100 cattle are already committed to pack. So they have all, they have these huge amounts of livestock in their back pocket. So when they come to the marketplace, they got the biggest bat to make the market, you know, shove the market around in the direction that they prefer. So they're enormously powerful in the marketplace. And that power also translates into on Capitol Hill and even at the state houses. They are, they have just billions of dollars to, in investment tens of thousands of jobs that they're around, and every politician pauses to listen to what they have to say. What are the, what are the some of the things that they seem really concerned about with these rules? Is, is this, are these rules really going to affect their place in the marketplace? Yeah, they're, they're, the rules are designed to whittle down their, their shoving and pushing that they've been able to do in, to producers of, of all livestock and poultry for the last 10 years. That's why they're fighting so hammer and tongs against them. It uh, it re- will really limit their ability to influence market prices. Uh, they claim they just had a study commission to study that claims <laughs> it'll cost these rules will cost the industry. In other words, these four pack a hundred thousand jobs and fourteen billion dollars. No, that's all hooey. They just, you know, purchased the economics that they wanted to support their political argument. In fact, the organization, the political group out of New York that did study for them, prides itself on getting the results that the political organizations need to, to influence policy. So obviously this is a one-sided, very slanted economic study that's worth not even the paper it, it's written on. But you would not see such huge money being spent to influence this policy by the politicians, by the votes, by, you know, um, 
wasn't going to affect them and affect them big time. And that's what they're against. This rule will empower the sellers of livestock a lot more than the bar than the buyers. You know, the, the PAC claim that this rule will stop them from contracting livestock for purchase. That's just hooey. There's nothing in this rule to do this. This rule's been waiting to be written since 1928, for crying out loud. Uh, no administration, no JIP administrator, has had the nerve to challenge the PAC for, uh, to write this rule. So the PACers have had their way for nearly 90 years. The last thing they want is somebody to come to their party with a better, with a better dress, and they are fighting this to the end. The USDA will be accepting public comments on their proposed rules through November 22nd. Find out more and how you can submit your own comment at www.iatp.org. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sy. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo. The Love You Save by Joe Tex. Diamonds Look Like Headlights by Arcade Fire. Poolside Dreaming by Buffalo Moon. And Clean Living by RJD2. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>